The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, this morning, as I said, this morning across our country, we celebrate sanctity of life. And a lot of times when we think of sanctity of life, what what is the one topic that we think about? It's abortion, right? And and we're going to talk about that this morning. But as I said earlier, my prayer is that through this sermon this morning, you would see that we are to be pro-life from conception to grave. And so in this, in this morning, we will be in Micah chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Micah chapter 6. And as you are turning there, I'm going to catch you up to speed uh, because we're kind of, you know, we're parachuting into the book of Micah. So Micah lived in the southern kingdom of Israel in Judah uh, around the same time that Isaiah lived. And, it, and if you read the book of Isaiah and the book of Micah side by side, you can see a lot of parallels between the two. And so during this time, Israel experienced great prosperity, but coinciding with that prosperity was rampant injustice against the poor and the vulnerable in Israel. Micah in, in Micah chapter two, verses one through two, it says this woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. He goes, Micah goes on to say in chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, that the leaders of Israel, they detested justice and they made crooked all that is straight. And they built Zion, which is another word for Jerusalem. It's the symbolic uh, uh, phrase where we say the city of God. They built Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. So, again, the lay of the land here. On the one hand, this time in Israel's history was a time of physical peace and prosperity. But on the other hand, it was also a time of spiritual rebellion and apathy. And of social injustice and oppression. And so because of their greed and because of their societal injustice and oppression of the poor and vulnerable in their society. God called Micah to both pronounce his coming judgment on Israel for their sin. Which would later consist of Assyria conquering the northern kingdom and Babylon coming to conquer the southern kingdom. Yet in his grace, he also called Micah to not only pronounce judgment, but also to preach of the coming hope and restoration of God's people. Or, or to put it another way, God's salvation would come to Israel through judgment. He will judge sin, but he will also deliver his people. And, and we see how those two are rectified in the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross, God has judged sin. And through the cross, He has delivered his people. And so it's within this context, within the context of Israel's acts of societal injustice and oppression of the poor and the vulnerable, that we read these words in Micah 6, verse 8. And in in this morning, I want you to see one simple yet powerful truth. That God's people are to do justice in this world. 
And so with that being said, let's read our text this morning. The Lord says this through Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would come. Lord, that you would open our eyes to your truth. That you'd open our hearts to receive your truth. And that you would open our hands to live in light of your truth this morning. Pray, Father, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word this morning, but but by your grace and by your strength and by your enablement, we would be doers of your word. So come now, we pray, Holy Spirit, and work among your people. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So first we see this morning the theological basis for justice. Look at me. Look at with me the, the first command there to do justice. And how we understand the term justice today, it's largely informed by our political persuasions and by our, our affiliations, isn't it? Th- those on the right tend to advocate for retributive justice. It's, it's the idea that, that we are to punish those who do wrong in our society. Uh, uh, the a way we put it is, right, you do the crime and what? You do the time, right? Th- this notion of retributive justice, it, it's been popularized today by the phrase law and order. So, that, so that's how we, many people on the right understand justice. Now, now, those on the left understand justice in a different way. Those on the left tend to advocate for social justice, that everyone deserves equal economic, uh, political, and social rights and opportunities. And popular examples of this today would include matters of climate, race, LGBTQ issues, universal health care, and more. In this notion of social justice, it's been popularized today by the phrase of what? Wokeness. So you have law and order on one side, you have wokeness on the other side. But this morning, when it comes to the issue of justice, I don't want us to go either to the left or to the right to understand what justice means. To define our understanding of justice using political theory, we don't want to do that. No, as Christians, I don't want us to look to the left or to the right, but I want us to look down into our Bibles to see how God defines justice And consequently, how we should then do justice in light of his truth. So again, look at with me. Do justice in verse 8. And that word justice here, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. And and that's not just so you can uh, uh, have that answer on your next Bible trivia. Uh, But the reason I bring that up is this word mishpat, it's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. In its most basic form, this word means to treat people equitably without any partiality. And so, yes, it does involve this idea of retributive justice, that that we are to administer impartially uh, justice and to enforce the law, that we acquit or that we punish every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. And, And we see this throughout uh, the, the Torah throughout, uh, especially De- Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And anyone who does the same wrong, right? It's the idea that, that they should receive the same penalty. So mishpat, justice, it does carry with it this idea of retributive justice, a negative component, a punitive aspect of justice. However, 
the majority of times that mishpat is used justice, it doesn't refer to retributive justice. It doesn't refer to punishment. The majority of the time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used in the positive sense of giving and ensuring rights to people. Mishpat then, it's giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. And so Mishpat, it carries this idea of both a negative sense of justice, retributive justice, punishment for the wrongdoing, and positive justice, the giving and the ensuring and the protecting of rights. And so I know, right, we talked about it, social justice, that's a loaded term today, isn't it? But again, church, I encourage you this morning not to define that term by how culture defines it. We're not to just throw out maybe a bad analogy, especially on this Sunday, but we're not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Rather, we are to see what the Bible says about this and how we are to strive and seek social justice in our world. And so when this word mishpat is used, it overwhelmingly is concerned most with the most vulnerable in our society. It's the taking up of the care and the cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Those who have been called the quartet of the vulnerable. Zechariah 7, it says it this way. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. So when we fail to care for this quartet of the vulnerable, we're not merely failing to show mercy or charity. We're not excluding some some charitable actions uh, from our lives. No, we are disobeying God's commands and violating God's justice. Tim Keller, he he put it this way in, in his book, Generous Justice, which I commend to you. He says this, that God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power. And so should we. That is what it means to do justice. Another commentator put it this way. There, there are few things more offensive to God than injustice. Injustice is a scourge of humanity, the byproduct of our depravity. And the thing that makes injustice so heinous is that it always involves the strong taking advantage of the weak. Injustice occurs when people in authority use their position to benefit themselves or their peers, often leaving people in truth to suffer the consequences. And so listen, church, this idea of justice, it's not rooted in... uh, in a reaction to what's going on in our society, it's rooted in the very character of God himself. Because God is just, and because he enacts justice for the fatherless, the widow, the the immigrant, and the poor, so should we. He is calling his people to be just and to seek out and to do justice for the most vulnerable and marginalized in our society. And so, listen, we don't seek justice in our community, in order to be woke citizens. We seek to do justice in our community, to be obedient Christians, to be the people of the God of justice. And in a couple more verses, we won't, the, the scripture is replete with references to the quartet of the vulnerable, but just a couple more verses to highlight this truth. Psalm 146, verses seven through nine says this, He executes justice, mishpat, 
for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. And in Deuteronomy 10, it says this, the Lord your God, he defends the cause, the mishpat. You're going to be experts in that word by the end of the sermon. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. I'm going to fix my mic real quick. Hopefully that will help us moving forward. There we go. One commentator said that when people embrace God's truth, they accept God's command to show justice to the weak, the disenfranchised, and people who cannot pursue justice on their own. This is how we act justly for the glory of God. So if this is true, and it is, that we are to care for the quartet of the vulnerable, then in our society, then it's helpful, right, for us to ask this question. Who are the quartet of the vulnerable today? And so that leads us to our second point this morning, the present need for justice. If our God is a God of justice, then we are to be a people who do justice in our world. And so while this list is not going to be exhaustive because we would be here for hours on end, for the sake of time, I want to share with you six groups of people among our present day quartet of the vulnerable. Six groups of people for whom we are called as God's people to do justice. And the first group of people are the unborn. On January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court issued a 7-2 ruling holding that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, you didn't know you are getting a constitutional uh, review this morning, but the 14th the, the clause of the 14th Amendment provides a fundamental right to privacy, which protects a pregnant woman's right to abortion. That was the ruling in 1973. Now, praise God that evil miscarriage of justice was overturned last year on June 24th, 2022. But ever since that day, that infamous day in 1973, an estimated 51 to 63 million babies have been aborted in the womb. Now, you would think in our day of heightened social awareness that those who support this evil of abortion would be in the minority. However, in a 2022 study by Pew Research, 62% of U.S. adults say the practice of abortion should be legal in all or most cases. And now, as I read that survey, I was reminded of what John Adams once said, that wrong does not cease to be wrong, even though the majority take part in it. And so while abortion clearly, clearly contradicts the teachings of Scripture, as we read in Psalm 139 this morning in our call to worship, and as Luke 1 gives us an example of that in many other places, through scientific advances over the years, we can also clearly understand that what is inside the womb is not a clump of cells, but it's in fact an alive human person. And that word right there, person, is key. So let's just briefly survey the scientific evidence. 
At the moment of conception, when the egg is fertilized, a new human life is formed, complete with its own genetically unique DNA. Unique DNA means that it is actually a new human person, not a genetic copycat of its parents. It's not an extension of, 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 mother, uh, of the tissue of the mother, but it's its own separate person, its own separate entity. Now, 18 to 24 days after conception, the baby's heart is already beating. And at eight weeks, brain waves can be detected and, and fingerprints have already been formed within the baby. By the ninth and tenth weeks, the thyroid and adrenal glands are functioning and the child can squint, swallow, and move his or her little tongue. By the twelfth and thirteenth weeks, the child can suck his thumb and he or she recoils from pain. By the fourth month, the unborn child is eight to ten inches in height. And from around 17 to 24 weeks, for those of you maybe aren't good at math, that's four to six months old. All the systems within the baby's body is operational. The baby responds and early learning can start taking place. And now, thanks to medical advances, a baby has the opportunity to live outside the womb as early as 22 weeks. Yet even without the biblical and scientific evidence, as humans, we inherently understand that, the, that this mass inside the womb, it is, in fact, a human being. And, and we understand this even more, right, as we have access to ultrasound machines. And I know many of you uh, uh, have children, but I remember the ultrasounds for every one of my children. And not one time, not one time after seeing my child for the first time did I think, wow. What an interesting clump of cells, right? No, euphorically, Emily and I both exclaimed, that's our baby. Do you see our baby right there? A baby. We inherently know this to be true, that what is living inside the mother's womb is not a clump of cells, impersonal clump of cells. It is a human being. It's a baby, a person. And so biblically, scientifically, and morally, there's no getting around the fact Human life, it begins at conception. And since every unborn baby is a human life created in the image of God, not only is it deserving of human dignity and value and respect, but even more, we are commanded to do justice and to protect that baby against any potential and actual harm that may come its way. We are to speak for those who don't have a voice and to defend the most defenseless in our society. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, it says it this way. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Now, I, I debated whether or not to include this in my sermon. I think for the sake of time, I, I will exclude it. But I encourage you after this service to, to Google the, 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 the abortive methods used today. They are truly barbaric and horrendous. Google the vacuum method, the dilation and curatage method. It's commonly known as the DNC method and the dilation and evacuation method. It is good for us to, to, to come into grips with these horrendous truths to bring that evil into the light. But listen, church, let there be no confusion or capitulation regarding this fact. 
that when an abortion occurs, and I, and I say this tenderly and compassionately because I know maybe for some of you, this has happened in your life. And there, like I said, there is grace and there is forgiveness found in the cross of Jesus Christ for you. But that doesn't deny the fact that when an abortion occurs, the murdering of a human life occurs. And so when we advocate for the rights of the unborn, we're not pushing forth a Republican agenda. We're obeying the biblical mandate that has been placed upon us to protect the lives of the most vulnerable and innocent and defenseless and marginalized in our society. We are to do justice for these babies. Now, to help you, to help equip you to articulate and to advocate for the sanctity of life in discussions, I want to share with you an acronym that's called the SLED test. The SLED test. The SLED, it stands for size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. And we'll go through each one of those. You don't have to feverishly write those down right now. But people who advocate for abortion rights sometimes concede the fact that an unborn baby, it is a human being, but that this human being has not yet reached the state of personhood. And so to defend their position, they cite one or more of these characteristics, size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. And so let's go through each one of those in response. So size, it's undeniable that the unborn baby is clearly smaller than a born human. However, it's hard to reason how the difference in size disqualifies someone from being a person, right? A four-year-old child is smaller than a 14-year-old child. Yet that four-year-old is no less a person than those bigger than her or him. She's still equally a person, even though she differs in that characteristic. Now, level of development. The unborn is also less developed than a born human being. But again, this does not disqualify it from personhood. A four-year-old girl cannot bear children yet because she is less developed than a 17-year-old girl who can bear children. Again, this does not disqualify the four-year-old from any personhood, any state of personhood. She is not less a person because she is not fully developed. So uh, an unborn is less developed than a four-year-old, but we can't disqualify her or him from personhood for the same reason we can't disqualify a four-year-old child. What what about environment? The, The unborn is located existing, living in a different environment than that of a born human. But listen, how does location affect your personhood status? An astronaut hundreds of thousands of miles above the Earth's surface is at that moment existing in a radically different environment than a scuba diver swimming 200 feet below the surface. Yet neither of these changes in their environment detract from their personhood. They are still people no matter where they may be. How then could a seven-inch journey through the birth canal magically transform a value less human into a valuable person? Nothing has changed except for location. And then finally, degree of dependency. Degree of dependency. The unborn baby is dependent upon the mother's body for nutrition and for the proper care. It's hard to see, though, how depending upon another person disqualifies you from being a person. Newborns, which we are in that stage of life right now, and I I put a hearty amen on this one. Newborns and toddlers still depend on their parents to provide nutrition 
in a safe environment. They, they, they depend upon us as their parents to care for them. Or maybe a different example, we wouldn't say that an adult ceases to be a person the moment they are intubated. They, they can't live on their own. They're depending on something else outside of them to live, and yet they are still a human being, a person, when that takes place. Personhood is completely independent of our degree of dependency. So we have size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. And none of these things disqualify an unborn baby from being a person. So while we should celebrate and praise God for the overturning of Roe and for more legislation taking place at the state level, including here in Oklahoma, and praise God for the laws that have been passed, just because Roe has ended doesn't mean abortion has ended in the U.S. and around the world. Nearly one million abortions still take place in our country today, and an estimated 73 million abortions take place every year around the world. There is still work to be done, and there will still be work to be done until Jesus returns. And when he returns to enact his perfect justice, when he will provide perfect care for the vulnerable, and when he will usher in the new creation. So church, I encourage you, let's continue to pray Let's continue to advocate for and let's continue to protect the life of the unborn. We must plead the cause of the defenseless and speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. However, there's always a a, a however, right? However, as Christians, we don't want to only promote the sanctity of life for the unborn. We should just as enthusiastically do the same for the born as well as we've talked about. Because both the unborn and the born are created in the image of God. So we're called to be just, not just, we're not called to be just pro-life from conception to birth, but from conception to grave. And so this means that as Christians, in addition to advocating against abortion, saying no to abortions and saying yes to keeping unborn babies alive, we should also advocate support and be willing to adopt children in our world. There are an estimated 153 million orphans worldwide, boys and girls living without the embrace and love of a mother or a father. And in the United States, at any given time, there are over 407,000 children in the foster care system to bring this a little bit closer to home, this, this past week I was in a meeting with people from both the DHS and an organization called the 111 Project. It, it's a faith-based organization that works to mobilize local churches to provide preventative services and meet physical needs for children in the foster care system. But in this meeting, they shared that as of January 1st, 2023, there are 6,585 children within the foster care system of Oklahoma. And that one, a little over 1,000 of these children are in Tulsa County. Uh, tragically, one caseworker said that a third of these children don't really need to be in the foster care system, but there is no viable alternative for them. So kids are just getting put into the foster care system because there's, there's no other alternative for their situation. There are 371, 371 children statewide and 66 in Tulsa County who are legally free for adoption. 
And so in the coming days, church, I want to share with you how we as a church can help to provide and to meet the needs of these children in our neighborhood. And, and so be praying for that and be preparing your hearts for that. So we are to advocate for the unborn, for those, the, for the orphan, for those in foster care, but then also those within domestic abuse situations. Because many children, though they don't find themselves in the foster care system, they and their moms currently live as victims of domestic violence. And and so I just want to pause and say, I hope this is not the case. But if it is, if you find yourself in a situation like this, please come talk to me after the service. We will walk alongside you and help you find the resources needed to navigate and to escape this dangerous situation and season of life. And listen, church, that's why we're about to have our business meeting, aren't we? And that's why here in a little bit, uh, we are going to vote on our annual budget. And in our annual budget, a portion of our budget goes to support Dayspring Villa, now known as the Villa. And so a little bit of background. In 1980, Dayspring Villa organization opened its doors to women in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as a Baptist women's shelter in, in here. And, and in 2012, they became the first shelter in Oklahoma certified by the Attorney General's office to provide care for victims of human sex trafficking. Today, Days Spring Villa, it provides a safe haven and ongoing care for victims of domestic violence, sexual violence, and human sex trafficking. And they have helped thousands of victims from many different situations here in Oklahoma and around the nation move into more stable situations and restore their identity through Christ's love and his grace. This is what it means to do justice. Church, we're not called just to discuss justice on a Sunday morning. We are called to do justice. Next, we, another group of people within our society, I think among the quartet of the vulnerable, are the immigrant and the refugee. We see, we see that in the Old Testament to be true, and it's still true today. Right now, we are living in a time of unprecedented refugee crisis. Around the world, there are currently 90 million people who have been forcibly displaced from their homeland due to war, violence, famine, political unrest, persecution, and other various reasons. Now, uh, one, one, uh, it's the common adage. One, one person, the life of one person, what, it's what a tragedy. The life of millions, it's a statistic. And so we can become numbed to these large and overwhelming numbers. But, but just imagine your own situation. Imagine you're living your, your normal life, and then all of a sudden, unrest and war breaks out here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And at, without a moment's notice, you have to evacuate your home, leave your family without having the chance and the closure of saying goodbye. Listen, church, this is what is happening to millions of people around our world. And to bring it closer to home, this is what has happened to over a thousand new Afghan a thousand of our new Afghan neighbors here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So yes, we are living in a time of unprecedented refugee crisis. But listen to me, we are living also in a time of unprecedented gospel opportunity because God in his providence is bringing to our neighborhood unreached people groups from difficult to reach places in our world. In God's providence, I'm convinced that he has permitted wars, famine, and unrest to displace people for the purpose of redemption. And so in the next few weeks, I'll also be sharing how we as a church will be able to partner with a local organization called Rising Village to help serve 
our immigrant neighbors and to share with them, to love them with the love of Jesus and to share with them the good news, the good news that Jesus saves. And then finally, you see on the screen a group, I think, that is often marginalized in our society today are the elderly. And this includes those uh, uh, older in age. And then also I'm including widows in this group as well. And so what, what is the natural process for elderly people when they uh, um, when their needs uh, are, are great? What happens? Stick them kind of out of sight, out of mind. And we don't really we, 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 we get them out of our line of sight. But as the church, we are called to care relationally and tangibly for the needs of the elderly. We are to say your life is valuable it matters. It matters to God, and so it matters to us. And we are to say to the widow, we will come alongside you, and we will help to meet the needs of that, that you have. Amen. We are to be a church who advocates for the life of the unborn, who advocates for the life of the orphan, for those children in foster care, for those suffering at the hands of domestic violence, for the immigrant and the refugee who have been displaced from their homeland, and for the elderly and for the widow. We are to be a church who cares for the least of these, for the quartet of the vulnerable. And so in closing, I want to share three responses, three ways we are to do justice today. Again, we're not to discuss justice. We are to do justice. First, we are to be convictional in truth. I I remember Listening to a conversation, this was about five years ago, listening to a conversation of two of my coworkers were having right next to me. Now, I want to make it clear that through, my, uh, through how I worked and, and through relational efforts with these two coworkers, they were close friends of mine. Uh, and I think that's important. But I, I, I and I forget what the conversation, what, what sparked the conversation, but it turned to the topic of abortion. Now, I had a choice. I'm in the workplace. I had a choice. Do I take the easy route? Pretend I didn't hear the conversation and keep my head down? Or do I speak up and advocate for the life and rights of the unborn? The Holy Spirit prompted me to speak. And I remember saying to both of them, are you telling me that seven inches of movement by a baby is what constitutes a baby as having Life and not having life of being a person and not being a person that my children were not humans prior to them being born. And I told him that that's unthinkable. That's unconscionable. You know, you know, deep down the truth that an unborn baby is a human being and that it's a person. Now, granted, after that uh, response on my part, the conversation, it didn't really naturally flow. Uh, and I don't know whether my. Uh, a conversation changed their opinion or not. It probably didn't. But I knew that I had to open my mouth for, the, for those who could not speak for themselves. Now, I don't share that story to pat myself on the back. I, I share that story. The reason I share that story with you is I understand that there is a risk at times for taking a stand, for taking a stand on truth. Now, you may have to encounter uh, uncomfortable conversations with the HR department. And hear me, I'm not saying that when you go to work tomorrow, that you find an opportunity to bring up the subject of abortion. We go to work to work, to work hard and with excellence for the glory of God. But when those situations do arise, 
when there is opportunity to speak truth into difficult conversations, we are called as Christians to stand unflinchingly and unwaveringly in the truth. Come what may. So we should be convictional and uncompromising in the truth of God's word. But secondly, we are to respond with compassion and love. There is a way to be convictional in truth and to speak with compassion and love. We oftentimes quote 1 Peter 3.15, right? That we are always to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. But anybody know the second part of that verse? How do we do that? Peter tells us we do it with gentleness and respect. Listen, being a recipient of God's grace leads us to being a benefactor of his grace toward others. When we experience God's grace, we will be givers of his grace to other people in our life. Or as our text says, we will do justice with an attitude of kindness in a posture of humility. And so when we see the quartet of the vulnerable in our society, the fatherless, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor, we don't respond with condescension. We don't look down upon them. We instead, we respond with kindness, not with a feeling of superiority, but with sympathy, not with haughty eyes, but we respond with a humble heart. Or to put it another way, when we realize that we ourselves are poor in spirit, it will change how we view the poor and the vulnerable in our own society. This also affects how we respond to women who have had an abortion in the past. And again, if you are in this room, I want you to hear this truth. Jesus forgives and he restores. One of the scariest things for someone enslaved by their shame is to come into the light. But it is in the light where you can find newness of life. So if you have had an abortion in the past and are still living in the shame and in the pain of your decision, today is the day for you to lay that down. Lay your unbearable scarlet letter down at the cross and place it in Jesus's hands and find full forgiveness for your sin. There is no sin so great that God's grace cannot forgive And as great as your sin is, Jesus's grace is greater still. The Bible says that where sin increased, what? Grace abounds all the more. So your past sin, it no longer has to define you. Romans 5 says that when Christ died on the cross for you, he didn't see you at the heights of your religious successes. No, he saw you when you took the pill and when you went into the clinic. And listen, he still gave his life for you because he loves you. God shows his love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Today, you can be set free from your sin, from your shame, from your self-hate, and from the brokenness and the baggage that you have carried with you your whole life. You can be loosed from those chains today if you would come to Christ And receive the forgiveness that God freely offers to you in the gospel. The Bible says that that all who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And so come to him today to be redeemed, 
from your sin and to be restored from your situation. There is no situation so hopeless that God's grace cannot restore. Finally, we are called to not only be convictional in truth, we're not called to be compassionate in love, we're also called to be compelled to action. Tim Keller, again, in his book, Generous Justice, he says this, a true experience of the grace of Jesus Christ inevitably motivates a man or a woman to seek justice in the world. Or to put it another way, being justified by God leads us to pursue justice in this world. Listen, church, as I said before, we don't seek justice in our community to be woke citizens. We seek justice in our community to be obedient Christians, to submit our lives to the truth of God's word. We are to do justice. So how do we do that? Quickly, I want to give you three ways. Three points, three subpoints, and then three sub-subpoints. Uh, first, we are to pray. Continue to pray for the injustices in our community and in our world. Listen, taking an active approach in prayer, it will change how you read and how you digest the news. And so rather than becoming more informed that, quote unquote, how our country is just going down the drain, the news can now serve as your prayer list. Pray through the news. When you hear of injustices going on, pray. Pray for God's uh, people to rise up. Pray for God to work and to meet and to care for the vulnerable. Pray through the news and pray regularly for oppression and injustices today. And then secondly, we are to give. Give. Give to Spring Villa. We, we move the offering at the end of the service intentionally today so that if God has placed it on your hearts, you can give to Spring Villa. We give out of a portion of our budget, but, but as a free will offering, I encourage you to give also as well. You can just write on your envelope, Dayspring Villa. Give also to Hope Pregnancy Center here in Tulsa. So just, just to let you know what, you're, what you would be giving to, Hope Pregnancy serves, served last year 3,066 individuals and provided 743 ultrasounds at no cost to these ladies. And of those 743 who received the ultrasound, listen to this. After seeing their baby, 82% of these women chose life. There's no greater cause than we can give to than that. I encourage you to give, to give to Hope Pregnancy Center. And then finally, I encourage you not to just do justice for the injustices in our own community and country, but but to have an eye toward the world the injustices of the world as well. And so a practical way that you can do that is by giving to the International Mission Board. They have projects, uh, humanitarian projects that IMB missionaries are using uh, to meet needs of people all around the world. You can go there and support a pregnancy center in northern Thailand. You can provide food, clothing, medicine, and access to the gospel for orphans who have been uh, orphaned by the AIDS epidemic in Africa. And there are many other projects you can give to. So we are to pray, we're to give. And the church, I want to encourage you. Lastly, be ready. Be ready. Begin preparing yourself now through prayer. If, if needed, through reorienting your disposition of heart toward the quartet of the vulnerable. By setting money aside, maybe. And by beginning to open your hands to meet needs within our neighborhood. 
As we begin to re-engage with our neighborhood this year, we will become aware of certain injustices taking place. And as I mentioned earlier in the sermon, there will be new ministry initiatives. They are in the works to care for both children in the foster care system and for our immigrant and refugee neighbors. So begin now preparing your heart and be ready to start meeting the needs of the fatherless, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor in our community and city to do justice and loving kindness with a humble heart. What he has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.